Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that will give its right arm for a good old-fashioned knife-edge amendment vote or crappy Theresa May speech. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky and joining me this week with their positive and supportive questions for our glorious government are a few loyal functionaries of the Fourth Estate. Roz Taylor is editor over at the LSE Brexit blog and she helmed our Bunker podcast yesterday. Hello, Roz. Hello. Well, there's some speculation about whether uh, Johnson would duck out of his first PMQs uh, with Keir Starmer. And, uh, of course, he, he has done by convincing his uh, girlfriend, Carrie Simons, to give birth to a baby. Is there any <laughs> limit to his skullduggery? Uh, no, no, it's very well-timed, isn't it? And, I mean, I, goodness knows how long he'll take for paternity leave. I don't know how long he's taken on previous occasions, however many those were. Uh, but if he takes two weeks, <laughs> I'm sure it can't possibly be enough to enjoy the joys of new fatherhood again. He's, he's always got something up his sleeve. Last Friday, The Guardian revealed that Dominic Cummings had been sitting on the government's scientific advisory group, uh, despite notably not being a scientist. Is it normal for government advisors to sit in on these meetings? Is it, does it all depend on, on what they say and how they do or do not participate? Well, I think it's debatable whether they can sit in on the meetings. The question is whether they're actually saying stuff and trying to sway things. And it is clear now that he was, because despite previous briefings, which hinted that he just sat in and didn't say anything, now I hear um, that there was a there was something something leaked today that he did try to intervene in SAGE meetings early on and calling for a tougher lockdown. That's a so fun twist, isn't it? Yeah, for it's a fun for twist. E- evil Dom uh, doing the right thing. It's very confusing. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? And I can uh, only assume that this means that he did actually say something in a SAGE meeting, so he isn't just therefore sitting in on it. And that is completely inappropriate because it's a scientific committee and he's not, however much he would like to be, a scientist. It is quite confusing, though, that his intervention was something that we would uh, we would agree with and not the, not the let the pensioners die philosophy that it's was not, previously attributed to him. It's not that confusing if you consider that he probably briefed it, though, is it? Exactly. Well, there's, unless, there's, there's two people familiar with the meeting, so unless there's, you know, I, I don't think you, I don't think you just get Dom Cummings phoning up twice, once with a funny voice. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I assume, I assume he's more sophisticated than that. He has a very distinctive accent. Um, Alex Andreu is an actor, writer, and we learned this week, aspiring plant mother. He discussed turning a flat into a greenhouse while in lockdown with ethnobotanist James Wong for our sister podcast, The Bunker Daily. Alex, welcome. Hello. <laughs> That's very formal. Welcome. Hello. Uh, it's been claimed that Sunday Times was barred from asking questions at government briefings because of last week's critical report, which we discussed. Uh, in an editorial in response, the Times said the government needs to be very careful picking a fight with the media and going down the Donald Trump route. Is this all part of the wartime rhetoric you've been tweeting about, this this way of making all criticism seem unpatriotic in a time of emergency? Yeah, it's it's sort of sinister, but also uh, brilliant from a from a PR point of view, isn't it? They've basically uh, invented this idea that they're at war with a sentient enemy. Uh, they've created a personality, you know, it's an assassin, it's a mugger, it's silent, it's cunning, it's invisible, it's a fucking ninja. They have invented basically a worthy adversary because to not do so would make it apparent that our government was outwitted by goo. So 
Along with that comes the bellicose language of wars and battles and stages of conflict and pressing our advantage, the purpose of which is to silence criticism. Because if we accept that this is wartime, anybody being critical is hurting the national effort. So basically, anybody who articulates the idea the government may have fucked up is a traitor. But of course, in actual wartime, uh, there were uh, journalists criticising um Churchill. This idea that basically during wartime everybody has to shut up um, is just not. This is not the case. Well, it's what they'd like. <laughs> the point, isn't it? <laughs> well, unfortunately, a poll by YouGov found the public has a massive distrust of TV journalists and the papers when it comes to the virus, and net disapproval of minus forty and minus fifty-five respectively. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson's approval rating is rosy with health. Uh, the Tories are at fifty-four percent. Uh, there's a meme going around from your. Uh, Weird Uncle and Alan Sugar, um, <laughs> basically basically telling the media to shut up because that's what the British public wants. Um, the government is trusted considerably more than the media. Why do you think that is? Um, my gut feeling is that that poll is a pile of shite, to be entirely <laughs> honest. Um, it's such a generic question. It will capture everyone unhappy with the media as a general concept for completely different reasons. So you ask that question to someone who only trusts the Express, and they will answer exactly the same thing as someone who only trusts the Guardian, because they will perceive that question to pertain to all the rest of the media. So you're basically capturing people who think there's been a campaign against Corbyn and people who think all the media is anti-Brexit lefties, you're capturing people who think the BBC is biased one way and the other. Do you see what I mean? So you're, you're create with the generality of the question, you're creating a cohort of everyone who doesn't like most media. Well, with uh, Frankie Boyle on Twitter gloating a rather unseemly way uh, about newspapers possibly closing down, presumably he doesn't mean the Guardian newspaper for which he <laughs> sometimes writes. So it's almost sort of, so you're supposed to basically generically people don't like the media, but then if you actually start itemising the media, they go, oh, I like that bit. Yeah, exactly. They all have a bit of the media that they trust. And that's the point, isn't it? Perhaps they, they only trust uh, podcasts about Brexit. <laughs> Uh, this week, the Eurovirus Epidemiology Contest. How is the rest of Europe fighting COVID-19 and what can we learn from them? We'll be speaking to James Savage, founder of The Local, the English language website for news across the continent. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, so Sweden's lockdown rules have famously been a lot more relaxed than elsewhere in Europe. Um, and I remember the sort of week before we had lockdown in Britain, there was a sort of, there was a real sort of tension and people were actually quite uncomfortable and kind of, even though they, they, they didn't really want a lockdown, they kind of preferred it to this sort of limbo. What's mm. the atmosphere like in Stockholm? People are, people divided into a couple of different camps, I think. You know, the, the majority of people are quite happy with the system that we've got here, which is uh, in terms of, actual binding rules and regulations, really quite relaxed. There is a minority who are very worried and very anxious, who are made very anxious by the fact that Sweden, I mean, in contrast to the rest of the world, is allowing people to get on with their lives as much, you know, in, in pretty much as normal. But there's also a big contrast, and I think this is what often doesn't come through in the reporting about Sweden and the rest of the world. There's a big contrast between what you're allowed to do and what people are actually doing. What people are actually doing is 
sitting at home, working from home, not going out, maybe going for a run in the park like people in London are doing as well. Um, And some of them are going to restaurants and sitting on restaurant terraces um, and eating lunch or eating dinner, having a drink. But the vast majority of people have reduced their mobility drastically. So there there are these sort of various ways you can look at at what's happening in Sweden. and, and, and and, And perhaps they contrast a bit from how it's being portrayed elsewhere. Well, one thing I think which would be relevant when it comes to kind of lifting the lockdown in phases was that in Sweden, is it restaurants, but also surprisingly bars and and nightclubs are still open, but require social distancing. Um, I haven't been to a nightclub in a while, um, but I remember they weren't very socially distanced environments. I mean, how is that actually working in practice? Is it just... Does it just end up being so stressful that people would just rather not, as opposed to just getting drunk and constantly having to think, am I two metres away from everybody else here? And most nightclubs are, in fact, shut. So, um, you know, the fact that they can open is one thing, but the impossibility of keeping social distancing in those kind of environments um, means that many, pla- that many places are that kind of shut. But bars... It is a problem. I mean, it's, the fact is that the uh, it's the bar owners that have to keep people apart, and they face closure uh, if they are found not to be keeping people apart. And there were five bars were just shut a couple of days ago in Stockholm because they because people were standing too close together and they weren't following the guidelines. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult balance to strike. It's not the bars, restaurants, uh, and certainly nightclubs, and and are not places where where people tend to want to stay apart they want to they want to they want to sit close together and it's and it's difficult to enforce also this week with the government taking a centralized approach to stopping the virus is there a risk that britain's towns often the ones that voted for brexit will be left behind that's after a few reminders from rods a quick reminder that our live stream with the bunker takes place next thursday may the 7th at 10 past eight right after the country continues its weekly applause for boris johnson's fertility i mean the nhs It's taking place on Zoom. Yes, there is no escape from Zoom. With me, Alex and Naomi, plus Ian Dunt, Aisha Hazarika, Dorian Linsky and producer Andrew, all stacked up together like some sort of metropolitan elite celebrity squares. (laughs) And there are two ways you can register to see it. One, support Romaniacs on Patreon and get links to the Zoom live stream, plus early access to each episode of the podcast and our coveted mugs and T-shirts. Our manufacturer is back out of lockdown, so delivery of essential supplies like Romaniacs mugs is back on course. Or you can now support The Bunker on Patreon too. Our overactive daily companion podcast has also taken the Patreon plunge. Lend your support to the podcast they're all calling much less depressing than the Today programme, and you'll get live stream access and a choice of rather splendid new merchandise. So that's Thursday, 7th of May at 8.10pm for the live stream. And we'll be posting video of it on both Patreons in case you can't be there yourself. Search Patreon and either Romaniacs or Bunker Podcast to sign up. And we'll see you then. Thanks, Roz. Being massive Europhiles, we're going to be taking a look at how the rest of Europe is responding to the pandemic over the next few podcasts, with guests dialing in from across the EU. This week, we're joined by James Savage, founder of The Local, which provides English language news from Sweden, as well as eight more countries across Europe. So, James, we're just discussing the kind of Swedish approach of keeping parts of society open um, and how it's created a lot of discussion, maybe not entirely well-informed discussion elsewhere. Certainly lots of libertarians elsewhere are seizing on it as an example of how to do things. I looked at the kind of death toll per million 
because mm. <laughs> that's the kind of thing I do to just keep my spirits up. And it did seem quite high. UK was 305. Uh, Sweden was 217. Um, so so not too far off. Um, what have been the results of what, what essentially is an experiment so far? Yeah, I... If you if you ask the uh, we, the state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell, who um, is the guy who's fronting all of this um, for Sweden, he's taken a much more prominent role than, for instance, the prime minister. He would say that it's it's too early to make that kind of judgment, uh, and he would say that you've got to look at you've got to look at over uh, at this over a long period of time, and that what he says is that countries that have had lockdowns, when they eventually have to lift those lockdowns, will see a surge in cases, so that. You know, you, if you if you look at Sweden's situation now, it's perhaps not entirely um, comparable. What he would also say is that while the spread of uh, the spread of COVID nineteen across Sweden uh, has been kept down thanks to voluntary social distancing in many cases, one really big failure of the Swedish response has been the fact that the the the, the disease has become um, rife in. Uh, care homes, particularly in Stockholm, uh, so that he would point to particular to particular aspects of it and 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 and, and encourage you also to look at the to look at the long term. But but you know, it, it, I, I think for all of us looking at this, it's it, there's 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 a there's a mass of data that's quite hard to compare from country to country. Lots of countries with very similar kind of measures with very different kind of um, results. And all sorts of factors that are really hard to understand, and where it's really hard to understand how they play in. Well, there was an op-ed I saw uh, written by medical professionals in, uh, as usual, I will mangle the foreign language here. Dagens Nyeta, can you? Dagens Nyeta, yeah. Nyeta, okay. Calling for schools and restaurants to be closed. Mm. Um, now, does that reflect a kind of, um, you know, a change in in public opinion? Is that still a kind of minority opinion? It seems like the, the kind of the the argument is very much alive. The argument is very much alive. What we've seen, though, in polls um, looking at how they how people think the government and the um, and, and and the public health agency are handling this, we've seen a fairly steady level of support for the government's uh, or for the public health agency's handling of everything. But we have seen a very sort of vital debate uh, between uh, supporters and uh, detractors of this of, of, of the policy and of of, of of the of this approach. So yeah, we had uh, twenty two researchers and experts who, uh, who who wrote this 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 now famous in Sweden letter to uh, to Dongs Nuhirte, really slamming the approach. Now they ended up getting criticised in turn by um, by Anders Tegnell, who said that they were who criticised their data, and it, and it turned out that they had cherry picked data to make the situation in Sweden look worse. Uh, to, to look worse than it was. However, you know, th- there, there were nonetheless arguments in there that plenty of other experts said were were, were valid. So, you know, this is the, I think this is this is it sort of illustrated the problem of, of 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 the whole debate about COVID nineteen, which is that we're dealing with something very new that even the experts have relatively little understanding of, and we have an awful lot of data that makes it really hard to draw firm conclusions. James, so. From a from a Swedish friend of mine, I was reading her uh, blog posts, and she was saying that there's a little bit of reverse engineering going on in that Sweden started with a strategy of herd immunity, and they're now trying to defend it uh, in retrospect by putting it down, you know, to 
to Swedish virtue and self-discipline that people have actually socially distanced when their uh, their original um, purpose was for that not to happen. Their original purpose was explicitly for the virus to sweep through the country so they could get it over with quickly. Um, is there some truth to that? What they're saying now is that herd immunity is not the aim and never has been, but that the aim is to flatten the curve so that the health service can cope. You know, this, that's this curve flattening. We can't eliminate the virus. We can't get rid of it altogether, but we can slow down the spread so that the healthcare system will cope. And But what they say then is that a possible uh, side effect of this that would be positive in the long run is that Sweden would achieve uh, a kind of herd immunity. So that herd immunity isn't the strategy, it's the uh, it's a it's a it's a side effect of the strategy, or a potential side effect of the strategy in the lo- in the in the longer run. Um, but you know, you you do see that 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 certainly the emphasis that they placed on um, herd immunity has become perhaps a bit less now than it was at the, than it was at the beginning when Britain was also talking about herd immunity. Uh, but I think the I think Britain's experience of herd immunity and the and I think the the backlash that you got um you you got in the UK on. Where, where, when when there was a discussion about herd immunity, I think that's also affected the Swedish discussion about herd immunity, just because uh, because because they they people realised that it wasn't a concept that that, that people felt very comfortable um, very very comfortable with. Um, Alex, in terms of deaths per million, um, the four worst hit large European countries are Spain, Italy, France, and the UK. Germany, mm. as you mentioned, is doing relatively well. Portugal, strangely, only has twenty percent. Uh, of the deaths per million that Spain has. Is there a clear link between strategy and results? Or do you end up having to dig into lots of local factors such as population density, how much mingling there is between generations, all all these kind of things? It's not just about when the lockdown happens. Yeah, I think the answer is both. So uh, this week I've been doing loads of work for Best for Britain, looking exactly at that over... Um, you know, all the other EU members. And the truth is that, yes, there are a million peculiarities to each country, but there are also underlying trends. So uh, to give you an example, in France, for example, there was a huge assembly of a big evangelical church in mid-February from which they estimate 1,200 people were infected and then dispersed to various regions and, you know, various workplaces. So that is a huge accelerant to the fire that is very specific to France. But the underlying trend looking at all of them is undeniable. Countries that lock down early have lower death rates, and that is precisely the case with Portugal and Spain. Portugal had its first case and its first death roughly a month after Spain, but locked down 10 days before Spain. So you can't, you, so you, you can't ex- explain that away. And I think part of it is a cynical political attempt to promote the idea of, well, who can say every country is different? Because politicians avoid scrutiny by not having anything against which their performance can be measured. But it, it's just not true. You know, you can look at the data and say, if I take these measures and apply them a week earlier, what would have happened? And you can make a guess. Yes, it's a guess, but a reasonably educated guess as to what would have happened. Ross, you've just launched the LSE's COVID-19 blog. 
Um, what have you learned so far about the different ways European countries are coping or not? Are there are there clear patterns emerging? There are clear patterns, clearly. I mean, our focus is very global as well. So we're looking at all across the world what's happening. And that's that's uh, there's a lot of obscurity. Clearly, our focus is on Europe because that's those are the countries we feel closest to and the US in the UK. But we actually know very little about what is going on in many regimes like like Russia and even to a certain extent China. Uh, it's very hard to know exactly what is going on. But of course, in Europe, we're more we we have a better better idea, and the lockdowns are often very very much more specific. From an academic point of view, all the different approaches are absolutely you know, fascinating uh, you know, from a purely intellectual point of view. It's like a kind of Petri dish where you've got loads of different Petri dishes and the opportunity to study how things in, in, in real time and is is fascinating for academics. And I, well, you know, I'm glad I, someone's I, I'm having amazed fun. by how many people. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at the LSE, I, I'm just inundated now with people saying, I'm working on this project. I've got this going. And this is all on top of all the work they were already doing on everything else um there is um uh, there is a huge amount of fascination well um in britain public support for the lockdown is is still pretty high in france it's fallen below 50 percent uh in america we're obviously seeing all kinds of different um degrees of kind of support for it depending on depending on the state and the politics of the state um how what is the politics of of easing restrictions do you fear that that in some cases it will just become overwhelming in the way that sometimes you know, people said that, that the public, it was essentially the public that kind of, um, that, that sort of demanded the lockdown here and in some other countries. Does that mean that some people will, some countries will bow to the public and therefore end up lifting them too early? That is a strong possibility. And one of the big differences between France and Britain is that paradoxically, in my view, Emmanuel Macron is a lot less popular than Boris Johnson. There is a lot more scepticism, albeit the French are always sceptical about their leaders. There is a lot more scepticism about France's approach and about Macron personally than you are finding in Britain. So that has an impact on, is bound to have an impact on, on his policies. The focus in France has been very much on 11th of May because it's been a while now since Macron gave a speech and said, on 11th of May, the lockdown will start easing. What people are realizing now is that easing is not the same as coming out. So it's emerging that not everyone will be going back to school. There's a lot of variation between regions, for example. Beaches will still be completely off limits. Beach, you're not allowed to walk on the beach in France and you won't be allowed to after 11th of May. So there's a, and now I think a feeling of disappointment about what this will actually involve and a kind of sense of, of growing resignation. In Britain as well, the lockdown has not been quite as strict as it was in France. You were not allowed to go beyond a kilometre outside your house to exercise, for example, in France. Clearly, we don't have that. So I think people feel more frustrated about the restrictions that have been placed upon them than they do here, where, as you saw at PMQs today, where there were two questions about when a garden centre is going to reopen, um, the focus is very much on how can I make the best of my lockdown rather than, oh, God, take me out of this lockdown. Well, is there, 
a, therefore a, a real problem um, with this idea of exit strategy and a sort of staggered lifting. Because when I saw other countries uh, setting out a kind of timetable, and it felt quite exciting, it was sort of the idea that, you know, um, it, in a few weeks' time or whatever, there would be certain things that you were able to do and you can go around to your friend's house or, or, or you know, whatever those kind of, those sort of smaller um, changes are. But once you do that, does that mean that if the sort of, you know, the, the, the kind of the virus, the infection rate, um, death toll or whatever changes, and the government then has to go, oh, actually, we're not doing that, then it does create this huge dissatisfaction. And so in a sense, the fact that Britain is not offering that is sort of politically wiser because it doesn't get anybody's hopes up. I think it, it appeals to different personalities. I mean, some people want an exit date. And they want to know, right, I can manage until this time and then it's going to ease up. Some people are quite prepared to carry on with uncertainty. And so, uh, and, and, and that, that's a feature of human personality, which I think we're seeing come out here as people respond to different measures. But yes, uh, there is, there is a, a, a lot of, I think a lot of disappointment that the lockdown is not easing as fast as everyone hoped and as a university uh, universally as everyone hoped on a lighter note however i was reading le mans coverage this morning and uh, someone was uh, they posted a thing from someone who was saying thank god you know at least we've got rid of la bise you know which is the french habit of kissing on each cheek two or four or six times whatever depending on the region thank god it's so unhygienic <laughs> and it's sexist i am fed up with blokes kissing me when i don't want to be kissed maybe we will see an end to la bise and what a breakthrough that would be <laughs> well that does something yeah <laughs> james i mean i'm interested in kind of the cultural differences here i read an article about the swedish situation which points out these kind of um these sort of built-in sort of advantages in terms of the population being fairly spread out a lot more single dwellings uh, than in the average europe single dwelling homes in the average European country. So those are kind of like sort of practical sort of cultural differences. But it also talked about the relationship between the state and the citizens in Sweden seeming quite healthy. Um is is that I mean do you do you feel that the reason why the Swedish approach is possible is because I don't know, there is a certain kind of a sort of mutual trust there that I don't think, for example, you find in America. Yeah, I think all of those things you're saying have some truth in them. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us were joking early in the pandemic that social distancing is just what comes naturally to Sweden. You know, it's what it's God's frozen people up in the north. You know, we, we quite like to keep our distance <laughs> from people. Um, so, you know, there, there's an element of that. And then, and then also, the, the, you know, there are plenty of surveys out there from well before the pandemic that show that Swedes have some of the highest levels of public trust in institutions of any um, of any country uh, in Europe or in the world. So, you know, that makes it possible for, uh, for an agency like the Public Health Agency now to say to Swedes, we're not going to force you to do stuff, but we do recommend that you do this, that and the other, that you stay away from people, you stay away from, you certainly stay away from old people, you don't have parties that you, um, that you work from home. We're not going to force you, but please. And then people will do it. And people have done it. Whether they've done it to a sufficient extent is, a, is, is an open question. But the fact is that they, that they have done it. And the, and, and the trust in institutions and the, and the trust between people must help that, um, must help, must help that process. Because when Boris Johnson was going, oh, please, you know, please don't go to pubs. Or, please don't do that. I mean, the general reaction was just like, what are you, idiots? 
<laughs> of course people are going to do it. What are you doing asking people? You've got to tell them, otherwise they won't do it. Yeah. So um, maybe that's the difference between Britain and Sweden. Maybe that is the difference between Britain and Sweden. But another difference is that here, here we've had a the Prime Minister taking a back seat. So regardless of what you think of him politically, it's not him who's saying this. You've had an independent agency with scientists standing at the front well, you know, far more prominent than the Prime Minister and all of this. They've been telling you what to do. And I think for some people that makes it easier to trust and easier to follow. Uh, and finally, one of the reasons we ditched the earlier sort of loosey-goosey strategy was that um, it became very clear that the NHS wouldn't be able to cope. What's the Swedish healthcare system like? Is it, is it in pretty robust shape before this? It has its... <sighs> It has its problems. I mean, you know, the, even before this, there were there were stories about Stockholm hospitals going into crisis, uh, in, into crisis mode because they because they couldn't cope with the pressure. And this was just you know seasonal flu or just general uh, general illnesses. I'm not sure what it was, but there were you know you do have problems in the in the health service here as well. But in this crisis, the health service seems to be coping. There are there there are intensive care beds um, still free. Um, so there's availability in intensive care and the hospitals, while very under, under very great pressure, say that they are not yet overwhelmed. So the health service is coping and the health service is reasonably good, but it has its problems like health services everywhere. Well, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, 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 hope the, I hope the Swedish experiment works out. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> they seem like very sensible people. Um, <laughs> listeners could see the work of the local at thelocal.com. Thanks again. Thank you. Research from the Centre for Towns has claimed that coastal and ex-industrial towns are most economically at risk from COVID-19. Wales will be the most hard-hit area of the UK, while the southeast will fare best from the countrywide lockdown. Many of the towns in the report were already struggling with bad health, fuel poverty and unemployment before the virus hit. And guess what? These were usually the areas that thought voting to leave the EU would solve their problems. Alex, Brexit was partly fueled by the disconnect between more deprived towns and more affluent cities, as uh, in fact was the um, the last election result. Does it look like coronavirus will worsen this divide? Yeah, uh, well, yes, of course. I mean, um, because coronavirus is also creating a fairly orthodox but incredibly deep market shock. So it's disrupting the economy, which always affects those closer to the edge financially um, more than others. So absolutely. Well, these are kind of long term. I mean, as as I think we probably mentioned once or twice in Romania, we don't think that leaving the EU will solve their problems. Um, but what what will? I mean, at the moment, obviously, we're looking at a, a period of very interventionist uh, government and mm. Conservatives actually, uh, in, you know, injecting a lot of money into parts of the economy uh, that need it. What could be done in this, you know, in the short term at least, to sort of help the towns most at risk and try and and, and kind of shrink that gap? I think um, I think what's needed is a reimagining of uh, the economy and. That that sort of thing would be impossible to do at a time when the economy was ticking over normally. But actually, this huge disruption provides a, an opportunity to start with a clean slate and, and say, where do we go from here? 
So I think my, I mean, my very general economic prediction, and, you know, when do those ever come true, is that countries who basically become obsessed about restoring exactly the economy they had, bit by bit, sector by sector, I think will suffer because there might be a second wave and a third wave, you know, there will be continual disruption. Countries which look at the situation now and say, what can we do? What industries can we pump money into that are more robust, that are more resistant to this kind of market shock? Uh, um, you know, looking at automation, looking, looking at robotics, looking at uh, virtual office space, looking at uh, apps, looking at streaming content. Countries which go in the short to medium term, let's just pump loads of money into the stuff that we know we can do, even in these circumstances. I think those countries and those areas will flourish. Ros, the research shows the southwest and Wales are especially at risk of industrial shutdown. Uh, again, thinking in the short term, is there enough support for industry in Rishi Sunak's interventions? Well, ask British Airways. We have a difficult situation here for the government where it has to decide whether it's going to bail out companies like British Airways, for example, and essentially ensure that those companies can pay their staff's wages or whether it's going to intervene and it is going to essentially pay the wages for them by uh, implementing furloughing schemes and when people are made unemployed, putting them on benefits. So the question about whether to bail out a company is therefore really important because do you think that this company has a future post-coronavirus or do you think that it's not going to survive in, in any meaningful form later on. If you don't think it's going to survive, then there's no point in continuing to prop up that company. And I think it's extremely difficult for the government to make those predictions at the moment, and it's struggling to do that. And obviously, the longer the lockdown goes on, the worse it is for the economy. Uh, but that has particular consequences in particular areas. How essential is it for coastal towns that it, it ends at some point in the summer so they benefit from at least some tourism, which you know brings in so much money to certain parts of the country? That's pretty essential. And actually, if it does end before the summer, it is a bit of an opportunity for coastal towns in Britain because normally people will be heading off abroad on holiday. That may not be possible this year, either because borders are still closed or because people just simply don't want to fly in crowded planes, for example. Or, or because, you, because you, Roz, didn't bail out British Airways. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> if that turns out to be the case and everybody's saying, OK, I'm going to have to have a holiday, I must have a holiday, uh, even if it's in Bognor Regis um, or Cleethorpes, then that will obviously benefit uh, coastal towns a lot. On the other hand, you've also got the problem of people having a much reduced income and a lot of them will have to skip their holidays this summer anyway. Tuesday was the 10-year anniversary of Bigot Gate, which Gordon Brown um, never really recovered from. I mean, it, weirdly, it turns out that he didn't really kind of move the needle much during the election campaign, but it's become this symbolic moment in the relationship between towns with their genuine concerns and, and the so-called Westminster elite. It seems like a real kind of proto-Brexit landmark. Why is, was that such a moment? Why are people 10 years later, you know, writing think pieces about what it meant about this septed isle. 
I think it's because the moment at which the the possibilities of populism became clear, it became possible to dub people elitist, even when you yourself were normally what would be considered elitist. Gordon Brown's not was never particularly an elitist. He didn't go to Oxbridge. He fairly down to earth, clearly metropolitan. But compared to David Cameron or Boris Johnson, I think you'd have to say he's not part of that elite. Nonetheless, it, the press and senior politicians realised at that time when they were able to conduct that attack on Gordon Brown and get away with it, that it would be possible to reframe all the tensions and resentments in the British class system around that model. Britain has always been kind of nominally dismissive of posh people, but actually enthralled to the glamour that they exude. And they were able to play upon that very effectively. And that was why, one of the reasons why, Cameron was able to win the 2010 election, even off the back of uh, promising austerity. And even off the back of being an old Etonian elitist himself, because you could deploy it and you could get away with that kind of accusation. Well, we've seen um, anti-elitist, elitist Boris Johnson pull that trick again in the last election um, and win a lot of towns uh, in the in the thing we were suddenly calling the Red Wall. Um and a lot of the new MPs there are actually, um, you know, local. Many of them are, are working class. They haven't just sort of helicoptered in uh, old Etonians. How genuinely committed do you think the Conservatives are to these towns which traditionally um, have not been part of their electoral coalition? I think they're pretty committed, actually. I think that they've recognised that Boris Johnson's personal appeal cuts through, aided by Jeremy Corbyn's huge unpopularity, obviously. But they know that if they want to govern in even a vaguely one-nation sense, they will need to hold on to those towns. And I think the Conservatives were delighted to win those because it was a sign that they could cut through these ancient class barriers and have a much wider appeal. And I think they are, one of the things they're doing, for example, at the moment is polling, doing their polling very specifically in these red wall kind of places to see how people feel about a Brexit extension there. And that is an indication of how attentive they are to their views. Alex, for whatever reason, uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, went down like a cup of cold sick in many of these places. Now that he's no longer around, um, what is the best way that, that Labour should should approach these places and, and win them back and sort of, I suppose, to to exploit the fact that the Tories have been sort of trusted with stewardship of these areas this time around, but perhaps not in the long term? It's um, it's difficult because it's, uh, you know, the relationship between a voter and a government that they have literally just elected a couple of months ago is an emotional one. It's not necessarily a rational one. That's why they call it the honeymoon period. I think that's a very opposite way of describing this first spell of a government. You know, they, they tend to be given a lot of leeway. 
And so the question is, how long does that emotional connection last? Because if uh, Keir Starmer is seen to be going hammer and tong at uh, um, Boris Johnson, while these these voters in the Red Wall are still um, emotionally attached to him, then they will perceive that very negatively. So you have to catch it at just the right moment when sentiment is beginning to turn. And until that point, I think all, all Keir Starmer can do, and all he should be doing, is simply presenting himself as a really uh, efficient, really credible alternative, which, which is, I think, what he's doing at the moment. So as long as people don't look at him and, and think, I could never see him governing the, the country, he's in good stead waiting for that moment when sentiment begins to turn. I think people who are not obsessed with politics like I am or you are, they don't uh, have necessarily a running uh, sort of total of every single detail of what's going on, but they do understand tone. And they understand whether your tone is fair or unfair. I've come across this so many times talking to friends who are not really into politics, this idea of that a criticism is fair or unfair. And I think that's how people perceive it. So as long as he keeps it relatively cool and factual, and as long as he's asking for information where people can't say, well, why is he asking for that? He's just trying to cause trouble. I think it will stand him in good stead. Now for our segment, To the Barricades. Every week, a member of our panel nominates a cause that could benefit from the massive amount of goodwill currently being generated throughout the country. This week, it's Roz's turn. This week, I'd like to recommend the Electoral Reform Society to you, which may seem an odd time to be doing that because clearly there are very urgent causes that need our help. But what the Electoral Reform Society has done quite quietly and quite persistently, because it hasn't got a lot of attention, is to really scrutinise and really try and bring pressure on the government to bring Parliament back. And that has now happened partially in that we have PMQs and we have a sort of virtual chamber. And that is a big achievement because I don't think the government would have bothered to go to the effort to do that if it hadn't been harried and pushed and people like me, for all that, you know, I'm not listening to, but the Electoral Reform Society were saying, we actually need a parliament. We can't just have government now. It's not just the executive. We need a parliament. And at the moment, they're putting a lot of pressure on the Lords, and rightly so, because the Lords, uh, proceedings in the Lords Chamber are not televised. We have no idea what the Lords are doing at the moment, yet, even as that happens, the Lords are lobbying for their expenses to be awarded, full expenses, while they're working from home, which is £323 a day, quite generous, one would think. A lot of them do have to work at home, of course, because a lot of them are very elderly. And you can say the Lords doesn't matter because it's only the second chamber at a time like this. But then, you know, you might as well say, why have a second chamber at all? Why not just get rid of any kind of scrutiny? If you're going to have these institutions, they have to be open to scrutiny. And that's why I am going to be pinging a little bit of cash the Electoral Reform Society's way. Thanks, Ros. 
The EU negotiations are back on again, which means they're back in stalemate. Michael Gove has complained that the EU isn't treating the UK like a sovereign state during the talks, which is a bit like complaining about the shade of the carpet while the house is on fire. And the house is always on fire. Meanwhile, Michel Barnier is urging the UK to engage seriously in discussions. The Financial Times says high-level political intervention will be needed at some point if this round of negotiations fails. Mm. Alex, has anything changed during the the kind of hiatus when the negotiators were ill? Obviously, the clock has ticked a little further. Mm. Has anything else changed in terms of attitudes, strategy, tone? Um, I mean, you sense that you sense that the British government has more space to go for an extension if it wants to. It has the the political um, sort of get-out clause to do that because I don't think uh, a huge uh, majority of people would go that's unreasonable considering what's going on, especially since it can be framed as a sort of uh, an act of kindness to our European friends um, who are also dealing with this pandemic. But, you know, Rob uh, was taking PMQs um, this week and he was asked uh, whether we're going to ask for an extension and his response was that um, if you want uh, uh, less economic uncertainty, then now is the time to double down to get a deal by the end of the the, uh, year, which just seems like such a... I mean, it seems like such a childlike notion, the idea that you can do a deal with 27 other countries that involves everything from agriculture to fisheries to every economic sector to finance to security to space programs to medicines. That you, the, reason, the reason you can't do that in six months is because you're not trying hard enough. The Guardian's Raphael Baer argues that the government is still prey to the delusion that they they sort of got results through brinksmanship as opposed mm. to you know caving on Northern Ireland, and that that was not just a message for the public, but they've also sort of convinced themselves. And he says, <laughs> once the fiction was established that Boris got a better deal by threatening something stupid, it became impossible to improve on the deal by retreating from stupid. So stupid is now the default setting, and stupider is the way to get there. Have they kind of locked themselves into this kind of? Well, you know, it's either this or we're off on WTO terms. Um, I don't think they have quite locked themselves in, um, but certainly it. I, I think for me right now, it it is between an extension and WTO, so a no deal Brexit. Um, mm. I, I I don't think it's realistic to expect to have any kind of deal in the next few months, considering what's going on all over Europe. Ros, Dominic Cummings told the FT, clearly there will need to be some political movement on the EU side, because as usual, it's the the stubborn old Eurocrats making everything difficult, Um, which seemed to be a kind of message for the kind of domestic audience more than for the EU. Does the domestic audience care at the moment? I mean, is there really a huge, such a huge... Uh, you know, interest in what's happening with Brexit. You know that that the, the government sort of hands are tied and cannot be seen to be letting down the the you know the hardcore Brexiters. Surely this time gives them more flexibility because it's not uh, it's not the biggest issue in the land. It's not a serious expectation. It's I think plays into the long standing 
nationalism that has been built up over the past few years and is now even easier to get away with as we are constantly comparing ourselves with other European countries and trying to big ourselves up when we look at our infection rates and so on. It's it's extraordinary, really, because there's some new research out uh, yesterday, in fact, on the LSE COVID-19 blog that shows that people are do not know how, do not realise, relatively speaking, how bad the death rates are in the UK. They think that we're doing pretty well compared to France and Spain and so on. So I think by emphasising that kind of nationalism and the sense that we are again a nation alone, he'd, he, he's, it, it's playing into the same thing. In terms of whether an extension is more likely, I think it's got a bit less likely as I over the last few days. And I think, unfortunately, the Brexiteers are beginning to realise that the economic hit is going to be so enormous that Brexit will seem fairly small beer by comparison, and they are hoping to take advantage of that in their arguments for a hard WTO Brexit. Right, we were talking. I can't remember whether it was on 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 this or the bunker, but talking recently about just the fact that that you know what what's the only way that Brexiters could, could sort of get away with the economic cost of a hard Brexit, and that's having a sort of historically huge global depression mm. where this just becomes kind of you know another drop in the bucket. Exactly. Yeah, they've they've done it again. It, but as as I was maybe they caused it maybe I don't know I'm just aiming homes I'm just aiming homesing it but maybe they developed coronavirus in a lab the, to make no deal Brexit seem less of a big deal the, the, prob- the problem is though that as I was explaining a, a couple of weeks ago um, you can take a, you can take a recession even a really deep recession and turn it into a depression by adding some structural reasons why your economy can't recover. So if if they go for a no deal and, and three years down the line, Germany and France have returned to the economic level they were at before coronavirus and, and the UK is still um, struggling and sort of 10, 15% lower than it, it would have been, then it becomes slightly more difficult to sustain that. Ros, there's a Big fear during the election was that Johnson's deal would see a striking deal that would put the NHS or parts of the NHS uh, up for sale. Uh, that was certainly the Labour argument. I mean, we discussed at the time exactly what up for sale meant. Certainly consensus is that, you you know, you can't touch the NHS now, that it is it is kind of acquired sense of, of a holy object. Does that weaken the UK's position with Trump, a man uh, who thinks that injecting disinfectant is worth a shot? Uh, will will sort of other bones have to, <laughs> other bones have to be thrown, you know, to appease? And hopefully Trump won't be around for much longer. Um, hopefully not around on the planet much longer. Um, but the the situation at the moment is that they are going to need concessions. That was one of the concessions that was talked about. You know, prices of pharmaceuticals, for example. Will Britain have to be have to find something else uh, that, that they can give the Americans? Don't underestimate how little they will be thinking about America right now. Coronavirus is the priority. After that, some way down the list, getting the deal with the EU or alternatively walking out to show how strong we are. 
discussing what we might and might not deal might we might and might not do with the US is extremely low down, particularly as you say, if Trump loses the election in November and we end up negotiating with Joe Biden uh, instead. So I think they simply haven't given it much thought yet. I don't think there's any strategy mm. at all for that. It's only podcasts like ours which are trying to consider these difficult, difficult <laughs> issues. I don't think the government, frankly, gives, you know, it frankly has time or inclination to want to think about that at the moment, and it's not thinking about it at the moment. Yeah, no, these are problems for another day. Mm. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. Each week, we build our bridge a little closer back to Europe. Alex, do you want to put something on the bridge this week? Um, so I toyed with the idea of, uh, you know, building someone like Julia Hartley Brewer into the bridge because my thinking was that every bridge deserves a troll. But um, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be more constructive than that and say. Um, Membership of the European Patent Organization. I think it's uh, overlooked. I think it's uh, it's really important in terms of innovation, in terms of attracting startups. I mean, being in a regime that means that you only have to do one patent application for something and get a and get a patent that applies to the whole of Europe. It's just such a huge. A percentage of the expenses of a of a new company that I would really like to see the government be sensible on this issue. Thanks, Alex. That's the show. Thanks to Alex and Roz and our guest James Savage. Now here's Corner Shop with our theme song "Demon Is a Monster." While we say hello to some of our latest Patreon backers, uh, who are very much appreciated. Hello and thanks for me to Mike King, Anne Joins, Rachel Standing, James Herford, Peter Cubbon, Andrew Cross and Carolina. Many thanks from me to Carl Burton, James Robertson, Nikki Millward, John Pascal Olivery, Tris, John Stark and Devorah Grazer. Finally, thanks from me to Daniel Smale, Helen Rapp, Richard Tevisham, Ben Plumley, Sam Jenkins, Steve Thompson and Max. Stay safe, stay sane, don't drink bleach. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Ross Taylor. Audio production scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.